Over the summer, I read, I think I read, I managed to read two books, um, although I don't think I've finished one of them yet. That's the problem with being a father of two young children. Um, I read one book uh, which I had been lent by a friend here in the congregation, and it recorded a series of interviews with Bono, the lead singer of U2. Near the start of the book, the, the guy who was interviewing him asked the question, why is a book like this even worth writing? You know, why, why should people be interested in this or want to read it? And Bono said something that I, I thought was very interesting. He said, there are stories to tell which are not songs. And the point he was making that although you can know a lot about him by listening to the music uh, and, and seeing what he has to say as, as he sings, there, there's much about his life that you don't know just from the music. Well, exactly the same is true of the biblical character David. We know an awful lot about David from his songs and his prayers as they're recorded for us in the book of Psalms. If you are a person who spends time with the Psalms, you'll get to know David pretty well because a lot of his, a lot of the Psalms are his and a lot of them talk about his emotions at different times during his life and how he directed those to God. But even with David, there are stories to tell that are not songs. And that's why we have been spending a bit of time in First and Second Samuel getting to know the, the character David in particular. Um, and we have to do that by, by looking at the stories which the Bible tells about him, as well as looking at the Psalms. Now, the Bible, I don't know if you, you gather this or not, the Bible certainly doesn't scrimp on stories about David. David's life is the most extensively narrated life in the Bible. We know more about what happens in David's life than we know about what happens in Jesus' life, for example, or any other biblical character. Just the amount of space that is given to David and what goes on in his life is beyond compare throughout the whole of God's Word. We know about his growing up and about his dying, about his friends and his enemies, about his sinning and his salvation, about his triumphs and his defeats. We know so much about David. In fact, when you read the biblical account of David's life, you get the impression that not an awful lot is left out, that, that everything of, of substance and importance that happens to him is included. And I think this is what's made the life of David such a, a, an attractive part of the Bible to me. I'm somebody who wants to know, how do you live this stuff every day? How does this work through the highs and lows of life? And this is where I find the life of David so helpful. It shows us how to live well before God all the time. If we read and we meditate on the David story, I think we're going to find that God's Word will train us to join David and to become like him, men and women, after God's own heart. Let me very quickly recap on the, the first part of David's life, the part that we studied together last autumn. This is good for, for anyone who wasn't here last autumn. You get the whole, the whole shebang in three minutes. Um, and for others who were, it'll be hopefully a useful reminder. The story begins when the prophet Samuel arrives in Bethlehem to choose a new king 
to succeed Saul. Now, against the prophet's better judgment, and seemingly against all odds, he chooses the youngest of eight sons, the youngest son of Jesse. He's chosen by God, and he's anointed that day. So, God's Spirit comes on this young man and remains on him from that day on. And it's from here on in that the David stories begin to pile up. The first and probably the best known of all the David stories is the one of David and Goliath. It's a story of a young man standing in a valley surrounded by the army of Israel. Instead of looking and seeing the giant that they're also terrified of, David sees someone who with God's help he can overcome. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You might remember that David then went on to spend some time in the palace as a servant of King Saul. And right in there in in Saul's palace, he never allows any circumstance to take him off track. He never loses sight of who he is. He allows God to encourage him and to keep him right on track, especially, you'll remember, through his friendship with Jonathan. Finally, whenever he does realize that his life is in danger, I don't know if you'll remember this, but the first place David runs when he leaves Saul's court is to the house of God. And when he goes to the house of God, he's fed with holy bread from the altar, and he's given a sword. And there's a very real sense that at the start of his life, as he sets out, he is being equipped for everything that lies ahead by God. You'll remember that David has to flee Saul and live in the wilderness. And there are times, quite a few times, when he's just not sure of what to do, how he should lead his men, how to go forward. And we read of occasions where David inquired of the Lord. We read as well of occasions where he's weak and he's running on empty. And then we're told that David found strength in the Lord. It seems that everything in David's life draws him back to God. You'll remember the time when he was just about to kill Nabal, whose name came up in the reading this evening. David was on his way to kill Nabal in a murderous rage, and you remember what happened? His wife, Abigail, came, intercepted David, and David allowed God to speak to him through Abigail. There are stories after stories, and I could go on, but I'll leave it just there. Whenever you take these early stories from the life of David and bring them all together, what do you get? What kind of a man is this? Well, we find a young man whose life is absolutely saturated with the presence of God. Doesn't matter whether he's winning or losing. Doesn't matter whether he's in danger or whether he's secure. His life is always oriented towards God. I said before, whenever we were looking at this stuff together, I think this is what the Bible means when it refers to David as a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that David's perfect. We're going to discover that as we move forward in this series. It certainly doesn't mean that. But David has a passion for God, 
an immediacy of God's presence with them that, that few have ever achieved. Let's pick up the story now and see how God's work in David's life is continuing. Earlier in our service, we read these opening verses of chapter 2, and we read that David is finally made king. Look at verse 4. The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. After all the years, David, David was hiding away in the desert. Some people estimate for as much as 10 years but those years are now over. After all those years of hiding away, of being in exile, of being on the run, now he's been made king. But I want you to notice that he's only been made king of his own tribe, Judah, at this point. The other 11 tribes aren't yet under his rule. The reason I asked Lillian to to read these particular verses, there's something lovely there in verse 1. And and I don't know if you'll have picked it up. You probably, your memory may not have have set the bell ringing for you. We're told that David inquired of the Lord. Now, that's not the first time we've heard that phrase. Three times already in the David story, the narrator uses exactly that phrase. This is the fourth time that we hear this chiming refrain, David inquired of the Lord. Now, we have just been thinking together the last few months in our evening services about living in the will of God. Well, David was a man who understood that. His whole life, at every turn, he wanted to know God's mind and to live his life before God. And I'm sure that's part of what it means to be a person after God's own heart. As I said, I just wanted to, to point that out to you and, and remind you. I think it's, it's lovely to see that repeated phrase in the life of David. We're going to spend just the last few minutes together this evening whizzing through chapters 2 to 4. Now, we're going to whiz through them because there's not a lot of David in here. For the time being, David is, is pushed off to the side as other characters take center stage. But we're not going to pass over this altogether because I believe that by by tracing David's involvement here and by paying careful attention to God's Word, we're going to learn another very important lesson about this life with God that we're all called to. Let me try and give you three chapters in not much more than three minutes. We've already said that David's king but he's only king of the tribe of Judah. So Abner, a commander in Saul's army, he wants to prevent the rest of Israel coming over to David. So he takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king of the remaining 11 tribes. So you have one tribe and the, the remaining 11. Now, no country is big enough for two kings, so inevitably Israel is plunged into civil war. Abner commands, on the one hand, the troops loyal to Ishbosheth, while Joab commands David's men. It ends up in chapter 2 that we read of a battle, and in a significant turn of events, Abner kills Asahel, one of Joab's brothers. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment. 
Then in the opening chapter of verse 3, we read a summary of how the war is panning out. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now, I knew we were going to have a bit of a problem tonight trying to get through three chapters, so I said in the bulletin this morning, if you wanted to read these three chapters, they're, they're actually great. If you like a wee bit of uh, Braveheart type stuff, a bit of blood and thunder, battles, um, a few assassinations, they're all there. There are more twists in here than most well-scripted thrillers. In chapter 3, we learn that Abner falls out with Ishbosheth, the king, and he switches his allegiance to David. He's come to meet with David, and he's planning with David how he can bring the other 11 tribes of Israel under David's rule. Re-enter Joab, David's general. He's furious with David. How could you let Abner come and visit with us and let him leave in peace? It was obviously a spying mission, he says. So Joab leaves David's presence. He hunts Abner down and he kills him in cold blood. He does that to avenge the death of his own brother, whom Joab had killed, sorry, whom Abner had killed earlier. And what we find here, although David's appalled at what Joab has done, there's nothing he can do, only to mourn the passing of a great Israelite. Chapter 4, I don't really even need to go into, but it just shows us how this power struggle continues. Two of Ishbosheth's men end up killing him. They cut off his head and bring it to David, hoping that that'll win them some favor with David, but unfortunately they don't know David very well. The last time somebody did that, you may remember, somebody came to David saying, oh, I've just killed Saul, thinking that that would win them David's favor. David took their life, and he did the same with these two men. David never raised his hand against Saul or against one of Saul's descendants because he knew that they were God's anointed. Okay, <laughs> where do we go with all of this? Let's, let's slow down a wee bit here and, and try and, and think of what's going on in David's life with God. You'd think that this was going to be David's heyday. You'd think these were going to be the best of times. David's out of the wilderness. He's been made king. Here he is in his prime. Surely, these are the perfect conditions in which to start to live for God. Well, actually, as we've said already, it turns out to be much less straightforward than that. Leading his own life and leading God's people is as much of a struggle for David as ever. And although he's king, in some respects, David feels helpless. Look at the last couple of verses of chapter 3. David's talking to his men about Joab murdering Abner in cold blood. Then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel today? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak 
for these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his deeds. This is the the part that I want us to think about for a few minutes as we close this evening. Though I am the anointed king, says David, I am weak. For these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. Eugene Peterson imagines a monologue that's drumming around in David's head as he thinks about these men, these sons of Zeruiah, by which he means Joab and his brothers. Their vendettas, their plots, their jealousy, their anger, they're wearing me out. I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I'm supposed to be growing with God. I know that I'm responsible for leading God's people to love God. But these sons of Zariah, they're wearing me out. They take up so much of my time and my energy. I'm trying to get on with the work that God's called me to. But all the while, I'm looking over my shoulder to see what they're up to. They think they're on my side. They think they're helping. They think that I should be grateful to them, but they don't understand anything about God. They have no idea that we're trying to live as the people of God. These sons of Zariah, they're too much for me. They're wearing me out. Whenever we read a few chapters like this in the middle of the glorious David story, we quite naturally ask ourselves, what is this doing in the Bible? I don't want to read about plonkers like Abner and Joab. I've had enough of that in the newspapers and on the TV. What is this doing in this fantastic story of a man after God's own heart? I want the David story. I want to read about Jesus. I want to read about love and kindness, not cold-blooded murder. What the Bible needs is a good editor. Why waste any good news space on characters like Joab and Abner? Friends, the answer is very, very obvious, but it's an answer that we probably don't like. This, this what we have read this evening, is the context in which God works. These are the people among whom God works. This is where men and women learn to be men and women after God's own heart. Friends, Abner and Joab are in the story. And the sooner we get used to that, the better. The truth is, each one of us is going to find wonderful companions as we walk with God. We're going to find people who are full of loyalty and beauty, people who are full of prayer, but we're also going to find people like Joab and Abner, and they're going to be right in the middle of it. Anyone who has spent any meaningful length of time in the church, the community of Jesus, will know this from experience. 
we, we come into the church and we hope for the best. We hope that we're going to be surrounded by people who will support us, inspire us, love us, and teach us how to live for God. And often we find that these people whom we expected to be our dearest allies start making our lives miserable. Worse still, they don't even know that they're making our lives miserable because they're doing their best to help us. Friends, the problem is that on this walk with God, in this church in which we grow, there'll always be people who don't quite get it. People like Joab and Abner who want to help but don't want to be attentive to God. Often we find ourselves sharing David's sentiments. I'm weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. As I close this evening, I I want to, to put a a surprising twist on this. I find this hugely encouraging. Hugely encouraging. Because I discover here that the frustrations that I experience and that you experience walking with each other are normal. And they're biblical. And there is no other way. There is no walk with Jesus that doesn't have its Abners and its Joabs. There'll always be people who don't quite get it. And when I read God's Word here, when I read 1 Corinthians, I discover that actually that's okay. That seems to be the way in which God has ordained it, the way in which God allows it to be. By the way, just in case you think this is a passing moment in David's life, Joab and his remaining brother Abishai, the one who wasn't murdered, they're going to be around till the very end for David. They're going to be thorns in his flesh until the very end of the road. Friends, this is the reality of life with God. And I find that hugely encouraging. It's so encouraging to discover that our imperfect communities are entirely normal and biblical. Wonderfully encouraging to know that it's in this context that God raises up David's women and men after his own heart. We don't don't need to go anywhere else. We don't need to surround ourselves with the great and the good. God does that work for us here in the community of his people. Let us pray.